Uh, let's open up, open up God's Word. Uh, we've been uh, studying the, Paul's letters to Timothy, and uh, today we're kind of turning over into the second letter. So we'll be in 2 Timothy, uh, beginning with verse 1 uh, through uh, verse 7. So I encourage you to follow along with me uh, as I read that together. I'll be reading from the NRSV. <clears throat> uh, it says this, Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I am grateful to God, uh, whom I worship with a clear conscience as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. And recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. For I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in you, and for this reason I am reminded of your first lived in your grandmother Lois, uh, your mother Eunice, and now I am sure within you through the language. Reason I am reminded, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power, and of love, and of self-discipline. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Um, I began pastoring this church when I was 26 years old. I was fresh out of seminary, and I was ready to take, on, take the world back for Jesus and make church awesome again. Uh, so I went to Starbucks, and I bought people's drinks, and while I did so, I told them about the church. I went to Chamber of Commerce meetings to promote the church to local business leaders, I canvassed the neighborhoods with flyers and talked to as many people as would listen to tell them that the church on LeMay with the weird roof is under new leadership. And every time that I did these efforts, I was met with a very similar response. You're the pastor, not the youth pastor, they would say. And I said, yeah, that's right. I'm the senior pastor, the one in charge, the buck stops here. Then they would look at me. Uh, roll their eyes and say, you're way too young to be a pastor. And so my young age brought zero credibility to my ministry. Uh, Certainly I hadn't lived long enough yet to be a minister to anyone except for students. And it wasn't long uh, before that fire that was once lived in me diminished to a small ember. Uh, And it is only now, just a couple of weeks from my 40th birthday, that I've gained some credibility in my ministry in terms of age. And I think that comes from the salt and pepper in my beard. Uh, Salt and pepper, a little bit of salt in the beard helps, goes a long way in in establishing credibility. And I tell that story to say, I think this might be something of what Timothy was facing as Paul's second letter to Timothy opens up. Uh, Timothy was young, he's facing discouragement, uh, likely because of the difficulty of the task to which he was called. You remember that Uh, Paul kind of brought Timothy up uh, in ministry and then would send him to troubled churches in order to straighten things out. And uh, Ephesus was one such church, and he's finding out that, in fact, that's a little more difficult task than he had planned on. And so Timothy finds himself discouraged, not only due to the difficulty of the task to which he was called, but also because uh, his age wasn't helping his credibility as a minister. Uh, In fact, in his first letter, Paul says to Timothy, Let no one despise your youth. Uh, Or some translations will say, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But Paul says, set an example in the believers in speech and conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. 
And so on one hand, in the first letter, you have Paul saying to Timothy, don't, look any, don't let anyone look down on you because of you are young. And then you see early on in chapter one of, of this second letter in verse four, it says, Paul says, recalling now your tears. Uh, clearly, not everything has gone uh, swimmingly in Timothy's ministry. Uh, it hasn't all been easy. Uh, we don't know exactly how much time has passed between the first letter and this one. Uh, but we do know that Timothy is still in Ephesus trying to work things out because these things never sort themselves out as quickly as we had originally hoped, right? Uh, but as with the first letter, uh, Paul begins his second letter to Timothy by commissioning him, reminding Timothy of his calling. Uh, the tone, however, in the second one is a little bit different than the first. Uh, the, the, the tone of the first letter was one of just sheer ignorant hope, <laughs> right? You ever been there where it's like, I wouldn't have hoped for so much if I had only known better, right? That's kind of the tone in the first letter. Like Paul is commissioning Timothy by reminding Timothy of the possibilities of God's grace, right? And he sets himself up as an example. Uh, the tone this time though is Paul is taking on a much warmer tone, much more pastoral tone. And his goal in writing the second letter is trying to rekindle the flame that has burned out in Timothy due to discouragement and to remind Timothy of the great gift that he possesses. Um, now, the immediate question for kind of Bible nerds as you're trying to, again, kind of reverse engineer the context is, well, what is this gift that Timothy possesses that, he, that, that Paul is trying to remind him of? And, and the truth is we don't know exactly what Paul is referring to, but it's likely referring to just the general gift of Timothy's ability to lead the church in Ephesus in the right direction. And, and the, core of the, the core of the passage and where I want to focus our time this morning is found in verse 7. Uh, verse 7 is a, is a powerful verse. If, if you guys are kind of into life verses, this might be one of those verses, right? It's one of those things you can just latch on to and, and really take hold of. But verse 7 uh, is this, this truth, this encouragement that the spirit that is at work within Timothy, that is going to equip him for the service to which he's been called, is not a spirit of cowardice. Most translations here will say fear, not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. And so you kind of have this power-punched power uh, verse that the spirit that lives within you is not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline. And I really like, I love how adamantly Paul states that we don't have, we haven't been given the spirit of fear. Uh, do you remember back in the, in, in the first letter when Paul says that true, authentic Christian teaching will lead to love? And he's doing that because he's kind of saying that, uh, you know, I've kind of gone the fear-based religion route and I, want, I don't want, my, my interest is not kind of reestablishing a fear-based religion with Jesus as the mascot, but my interest is, is in establishing a true, authentic Christian faith that is that in the evidence or the key part of that, that we know it's going to be Christian and authentically Christian is that it leads to love instead of fear, right? So he's kind of got this little background going from the first letter, and now he's opening the, the second letter with a true punch of saying that spirit that is within you is not going to lead you primarily into fear, but rather is going to lead you in power and love and self-discipline. And so he's, adamant, he's, he's adamantly stating that it's not, that we haven't been given a spirit of fear. And he goes on to say, I, and I think he says this because he knows how easy it is to be motivated by fear, right? 
I think Paul just has this kind of, having been motivated by fear in the past, he kind of intuitively knows, he experientially knows that it's so easy to be given over to the ways of fear, where, it's, where our internal fears are the things that motivate us the most, right? And, and we've talked about this in, uh, during our Greater Than series, where we talked about love is greater than fear. But just to kind of revisit some of those same themes, isn't it true that many of us deal with internal fears that can hinder us. Again, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but, <laughs> uh, but f- many of us have this kind of fear of failure, right? And that the thing that we fear the most is, is, not, is, is being inadequate. So maybe it's a fear of failure, maybe it's a fear of inadequacy, maybe it's a fear of rejection. And those fears, when th- those are, are the basis, the motivation for so much of what we do, right? That, that when we look at kind of the outcomes of our actions and the fuel that drives those, and if we're honest, so often it's fear. There's also a fear that, uh, of change, right? So fear of change can, can keep us clinging to the past and fear, those fears that I've mentioned, failure, rejection, inadequacy, can actually keep us from truly connecting with one another. And so we kind of have all these internal fears too, but we also deal with external fears, right? Fears that, are, that aren't internal to us, but are external to us. And, that, and then there's, there's corporations and media that are trying to kindle those fears in order to manipulate us, right? We've talked about this before, but... Uh, fears such as economic loss, cultural change, uh, xenophobia, which is fear of people from different countries, can actually lead us to, to toward, like, have violence or violent attitudes toward people who are different from ourselves. And so we have like, all these kind of fears, these internal fears that we wrestle with, these external fears that other people are trying to kindle and manipulate to maybe control us, right? And Paul says, the spirit of God that is in you and that has been given to you is not a spirit of fear. And he's absolutely adamant about this. And I think that's a really important word for the church and for the people of God, is to really take an honest look at our lives and say, what are the things that are driving us? What are the things that are motivating us? What are the things that are kind of moving us in directions? Is it fear or is it something else? And it would be one thing if Paul would just say, hey, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, and then just drop it, right? And then we'd say, what now? <laughs> but instead, Paul goes on to give us these powerful alternatives to fear, to the fear that can so easily grip us. Paul gives us alternatives. And the alternatives are a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Now, when you hear the word power, what do you think of? Uh, do you think of strength? Or do you think of maybe positional power? That is power that's gained by virtue of holding a particular position or a particular office? Or do you think of kind of a superhero power, which more often than not is the ability to accomplish my will through force, right? Um, and when we talk about a spirit of power, it's very important to know what kind of power that we're talking about. And so the Greek word here is the, is the, is the word um, dunamis, which is pretty clearly where we get words like dynamite or dynamic, right? And so this could mean, for, for us, it could mean a couple of things. Like when Paul is talking about God giving us the spirit of power, 
Is he talking about that the Spirit of God has given us the same kind of power that we typically are easy like understand in our culture, or what kind of power is he really talking about? And there's a couple options here. The first one I think of is, in fact, strength, right? That, that Paul, part of Paul's encouragement to Timothy is that through the Spirit of Christ that is in him, he can have strength over being driven by fear. And that's an important distinction, right? Because all of us are going to have fears, okay? That I think, that's, but what's important is that we're not driven by those fears. So the issue is not, am I sometimes afraid or do I sometimes experience fear of feeling inadequate or fear of rejection, right? Those things can come to us at any time. But what's, what's a real issue here is, am I being driven or am I being motivated primarily by that fear? Is it a fear of rejection that, that literally motivates or drives my actions in my life? And so Paul is saying the issue here is not that you have fear, but that you are driven by fear. And his encouragement to Timothy is that you do not have to be driven by those fears because you have been given strength over them. Amen? That by the Spirit of God that lives in you, you do not have to be driven primarily by those fears. Now, place, put yourself in Timothy's shoes. You're a young buck in a struggling church trying to turn it around and, and kind of face these, these, uh, these teachers that are doing some weird stuff, right? And, and you've been commissioned by Paul to, to go into that setting and, and kind of right the ship, right? Uh, if you put yourself in Timothy's shoes... I can imagine that Timothy has some pretty significant fear of feeling inadequate. There is no way I am up to this task. I, I would imagine that Timothy has significant fears of failure, right? Man, this is my first assignment. I've been commissioned by Paul. Paul's kind of got a name, you know, and now he's commissioning me, and this is my first assignment. I've got to go. I've got to get this church planting other churches in three years, you know. I'm like, I've got I to meet all the metrics. I've got to report to the district superintendent, <laughs> okay? So you, you understand what I'm saying? Is like he's, he's kind of got all these pressures, fear of failure, fear of inadequacy. I imagine we're very, like, palpable in Timothy's life. And Paul's encouragement to him is, by the Spirit of God, those fears do not have to be the primary motivator in your life. That you've been given a spirit of strength over those things. Amen? I think that's a really powerful word of encouragement. So when we think about power, is it kind of superhero power that by, through force, like appropriate your own will? Well, I don't think so. I think rather it's this, this strength over the fear that can so easily motivate us and drive us. But there's another way of understanding this power too. And as I was doing some research, it's, it's power of like virtue of heart or excellence of spirit. And, and to help us get there, I want to actually talk to us about kind of positional power. Okay, because a lot of times we understand power, it's like this person is in power by virtue of the office or position that they hold. Maybe it's in an organization, maybe it's in a nation, maybe it's in a, in a um, uh, business setting, right? Like, so whatever it is, th this person holds position or office that brings a certain level of authority, right? Uh, and so to get to this idea of virtue of heart, I want to talk about positional power. Now, you've heard it said that power corrupts. Uh, and the truth is, is a lot of times that is in fact true. 
And yet, we've kind of faced this reality that societies and organizations actually need people in positions of power, in positions of authority and influence, who will lead the way, who will move us in a right direction. And so you kind of have this double-edged sword of, of like the, necess- the necessity of leaders, and yet the idea that sometimes positional power can corrupt character, right? And, and, and so you kind of, like, how do you live in this, this tension? that we need those who can find the right words at the right time to provide clarity, but also knowing that those who hold positions of power run the risk of corrupting that person in power and therefore being harmful to the people over whom the power is exercised. Are you with me, right? And Timothy himself finds himself in this position. Timothy finds himself in this position. He has this kind of positional power over this community. They're looking to him for leadership, and he's trying to kind of balance this, right? Which is why I want to say that right after Paul saying that the Spirit of God has given us a spirit of power, he immediately follows it with love. Power and love. You have been given a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. You see, when positional power is divorced from love, it can be very, very destructive. Did you hear that? When positional power is divorced from love, it can be very, very destructive. And yet, when power, that is virtue of heart or excellence of spirit, is joined with love, then you have those who will leverage their influence for the good of others. You with me? So so this idea, this kind of interplay between power and love is absolutely central to Paul's conception here of what it means to have this, this spirit of God that lives in us. Is, is this excellence of spirit that is joined with love so that those who find themselves in positions of authority and power can leverage that power for the good of others. And so for Paul, and of course he's taking his cues from Jesus here, right? He's taking his cues from Jesus. But for Paul, leadership is where a person uses their influence for the good of other people. Leadership is where a, a, a person uses their position for the good of other people. That's leadership. And, and what, what Paul will say, say it in this way, Jesus will say it by sitting down and washing his disciples' feet as the leader. He, where, where Jesus, so again, Paul is a little bit like um, prose. In other words, he's going to explain things with ideas. Jesus is going to embody those ideas, Right? This is why so often Jesus does not just give us a whole bunch of words. He's very selective in his words, but then he just goes and like embodies everything, right? And, and so, what, so Paul will give us kind of this interplay between power and love. Jesus will wash his disciples' feet. They're saying the same thing, okay? They're saying the same thing, and that is that to be in a position of leadership is good so long as you are using that influence and that position for the good of others. As long as you are, are kind of marrying the idea of, of power and love together. Now, for those, now I would want to encourage you, because I can, I, can, I can hear your thoughts right now. And some of you are like, well, I'm a nobody at work, and I don't have this, and so I'm not in a position of power, right? So I would, I would, I would encourage you to be to be careful not to too narrowly define what it means to have a position of power and influence, okay? 
I'm looking at you, parents, bosses, supervisors, grandparents, children's workers, aunts, uncles, friends, etc. right? In other words, all of us are in some position of authority over someone, right? That we, all of us have kind of have a circle of influence, and the encouragement then is to allow that circle of influence to be used to exercise love and uh, good for others. You with me? Okay. And then now self-discipline fits so naturally into this list of power and love that if you are going to leverage power to serve people with love, you're going to have to have some self-discipline. If you're going to leverage power to serve people with love, you're going to have to have self-discipline. Okay? Now let me talk a little bit more, and I'm almost done. Many of you know that I was like sick and in bed uh, for a portion of the week, and so part of the benefit to you is short sermons when that happens. So uh, I'm feeling better, and you get a short sermon, so it's a win-win. Uh, so I'm almost done. Uh, but, but here, I want to talk a little bit about this interplay between love and power, because it's really important here. And many people struggle conceptually with how these two things can both be true of God. How can God be both all-loving and all-powerful? Okay? And in case you didn't have the conundrum, here's how it goes. Here's the conceptual issue that people have. Okay? So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm like giving you problems. <laughs> and then I'm going to quickly solve them, I promise. But, but here's the conceptual problem. If God is powerful enough to stop suffering... Uh, then he must not, if God is powerful enough to stop suffering, but he doesn't, then he must not be loving. Okay? Now, now the, other, the other side of that is, on the other hand, perhaps God is loving, but if that is the case, then he isn't powerful enough to end or prevent my suffering. And so you end up with, if one is true, then conceptually, a lot of people struggle here, then the other one can't be. And so how can you have both an all-loving God who is all-powerful? And it has to do with how are we understanding power, okay? That's, how it all, that's, that's basically what the issue boils down to. And, and here's what I want to do. I want to end the sermon by pointing us to the cross of Christ. That when we understand the cross we see that these two qualities collide with Jesus Christ on the cross. That God loved us so much that he took our sin upon himself and did not respond with retaliation, did not respond with equal, equal violence, did not respond with hatred toward his abusers, but rather responded with forgiveness. There is no greater picture of love than that. Okay? So you have the all-loving part. And in that same time, the, the power of that love is vindicated when Jesus rose from the dead. And so what Jesus shows us is that he is powerful enough to overcome the worst enemy of all that is death. And so what you have in the cross 
is, is the, the God-made flesh, Jesus Christ, the, the one who is fully God and fully human, who demonstrates the unending, unbound love of God by taking on our sin upon himself, responding through forgiveness, and in that moment, allowing that sin to literally end his life and yet go through the grave, through the other side, to defeat death, demonstrating that the best kind of power is the one who serves others. The true power, true power is self-sacrificial love, okay? Now, without the resurrection, all you have is this was a really nice guy, okay, who did a pretty phenomenal thing in history. But with the resurrection, what you see is that love that was demonstrated on the cross is vindicated and shown and revealed to be actually the most powerful force in the world because it can defeat even death. You with me? Now, that's right, I should, I should hear a lot more amens if this is a Christian crowd, okay? <laughs> because that's, that's the core of our faith. That's the core of our faith, is what does it look like when, when the God of the universe flexes his muscles? It looks like self-sacrificial love on the cross. And, and, and the church has, has got to get this right, okay? We've got to get this right if we are going to maintain a witness in the world because if we, if, we, if we are swayed by all sorts of other narratives of what power looks like and what power does, uh, but it, and, it, and it doesn't look like the cross, then there's a good chance it isn't Christian, right? But if it looks like the cross, which is self-sacrificial love or power expressing itself through love, then, then we've got a, a truly authentic, authentically Christian witness in the world. Are you with me? And so we, we, we need to get this right. And, and so my encouragement to us today is this. While you may not feel called to ministry or vocational ministry as Timothy and Paul were, there's still life in this passage, okay? There's a lot from the letters of Timothy that I, that I identify with a lot uh, as one who has been called to vocational ministry, right? It's like, hey, Timothy was raised up as a young man and then sent to a church that had kind of seen some better days. There's a lot of that that I can identify with, okay? Uh, and, and so you may say, you may kind of feel removed from that, but I would want to remind you that this passage has life in it because it reminds us of the nature of who God is and how God equips us to live out our lives. Okay, it points us to the character of God that God is one who would express his, the most ultimate power in self-sacrificial love. But also it reminds us of how God equips us to live out our lives. That we ourselves, you, y'all, have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. Amen? And, and so my prayer for us today is that we would simply learn to live according to that spirit that is already within us. Part of the beauty of, of Paul's letters is he's often pointing the people to whom he writes to what is true about them in Christ, right? So he say, hey, I know, you're, I know you're not quite living in this way or you're not always doing this perfectly, but let me just remind you what is true of you in Christ. And this is certainly one of those, that in Christ we've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and self-discipline.
So let me say a word of prayer to help us live into that and lean into that today. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your presence here with us today. And thank you, God, that you um, have not left us to the ways of fear um, that can so easily uh, entwine us and motivate us. God, we recognize that, that fear is all over in our culture. There's, there's so many people invested in keeping us afraid in order to manipulate our consumer habits and what we watch and the kind of media we take in, all those kinds of things. But God, may the people of Christ be a faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we live not according to that fear that so easily grips us, but may we live according to the spirit that is within us, a spirit of strength over those fears, a spirit of self-sacrificial love, and a spirit of self-discipline, God. So Lord, help us, fill us, uh, motivate us, strengthen us, guide us, God, in what this means in our day-to-day living, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. Um, Lord, help us what it, looks, what it means to live in these ways. And God, we trust in you to speak to us and to guide us. Especially now, Lord, as we come to the table, as we gather around in unity to remember the death and passion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but also, God, to look forward to your coming again, to look forward to the day when all things will be made new, when the world will be put back to right. God, may we be a people of of hope and anticipation, people who lean into uh, what will one day be true because of the promises of the gospel. And so, Lord, be with us in these moments. May we experience your presence. May our uh, hearts be tuned to what you would have to say to us, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.